Judges chapter 13, verse 17. As the book of Hebrews comes to a close, the final thoughts of this book are focused in on the importance and the health of the local church. I find that a fascinating way to finish an epistle like the book of Hebrews. We're going to talk about things like this, the relationship between spiritual leaders and Christians and the will of God and what we do together becomes absolutely central to the author's thoughts. So instead of recapping all of the things that we have dealt with, instead of uh, sort of going over again angels and priests and temples and sacrifices and warning, warnings against falling away, instead of going through all of that, what happens is that as we finish this, we get focused on the place, the literal actual place where all of that becomes real, the local church. And the more I thought about this this week, this actually I think is a wonderful way to wrap up a lot of information. There's been a lot of talk about who Jesus is and how he is greater than every other claim to our salvation and our provision. There's been a lot of information about belief and behavior and a lot of information about living the life of the faith. So instead of this kind of bullet point summation, the author simply says, just pay attention to your local church. You see, where you and I gather together as Christians really should encourage us and remind us in the truths of Jesus Christ. And when we gather together like this or small groups or Sunday school classes, whatever it is, we keep obedience in our line of sight. It's almost as if our final thought is something like this. It's, it's okay if you don't remember every detail to the book of Hebrews this morning. There won't be a test today, right? It's okay if you don't remember all of it, because your community of faith will keep talking about God. Your community of faith will keep these things before our eyes. Your community of faith will continue to talk about the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. At least it should. This is the intention. This is the desire. So here are some of the big ideas that we're going to talk about this morning that will help hold this passage together for us. First of all, there is this really powerful reciprocal relationship between pastors and churches, between spiritual leaders and congregations. We're to learn that pastors are accountable for what they teach and for how they lead the body of Christ. We're going to learn that churches and Christians are accountable for how they obey the will of God and how they respond to the things that they hear. And if each are doing their jobs well, we find this effective and courageous and powerful body of believers. So there is this important relationship between churches and pastors. And then this idea that we pray for each other. Now this should be a pretty common thought to us, but the New Testament from time to time will actually pay specific attention to how it asks congregations to pay for, pray for their pastors and spiritual leaders and how it expects pastors and spiritual leaders to be praying for their congregation. So again, this thing, this thing of prayer becomes an important component to the life and the health of the local church. And then finally, this thought, and it comes up, I think, always in interesting ways at the ends of epistles. Our fellowship with one another is absolutely critical. We're going to find out the author wants to be back 
with these Christians. He's writing because he's not with them. So he wants to remind them of things. And then here at the end of the book, he says, pray that I get restored to you. At the end of the book, he says, the Christians that we know in Italy, our brothers and sisters in Christ across the Mediterranean Sea, they send their greetings. And by the way, this pastor that we all know and love has been released from prison. This notion of fellowship and how we interact with each other becomes absolutely critical. So we learn again as we finish this book, we need each other as followers of Jesus Christ. So let's begin reading. And I want us to read verses 17, 18, and 19 as we get started. The text says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. And I'm going to open the altars, and I'm going to start calling some of you out. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those will have, who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Obey your leaders and submit to them. So there's, there's a lot in this passage, I think about the author's intent for the health and the activity and the work of the local church and that local church's relationship with their spiritual leaders, including whoever it is who writes the book of Hebrews. And the first thing that sort of got started with me is, is thinking through the importance of the actual local church, the role that the church plays in the lives of Christians today, those of us who are coming to know Jesus Christ, but then also, if we take just a moment, we sort of put ourselves in their shoes and we think about the importance and the work and the building of the local church, I think maybe we begin to see some things about what's supposed to be happening as we gather together as the body of Jesus Christ. Guys, the creation of local groups of Jesus followers was absolutely critical to the leaders of the New Testament church. Think about this for a second. None of them grew up in church. And in fact, depending on when this book was written, 30, 40, 50 years before this book was written, there was no such thing as the church. It's a brand new institution. And it's an institution that's designed to gather people together who follow Jesus Christ despite any of their positions in the world outside of the church. We come together to follow and to worship Jesus Christ and to encourage one another. So the building of these gatherings, the health of these gatherings became critical to the New Testament. If you think about the book of Acts and the beginning of the church there in Acts chapter 2 and then how the church gets scattered through persecution and all that does is plant churches everywhere that Christians go and we follow the apostles Peter and John and all these other Christians and then we get to Paul... You see, everywhere these people went, and think of Paul for just a moment, everywhere that Paul went, he either encouraged the church that was already there, or he planted a church in some place brand new. So it wasn't just encouraging churches and planting churches, he would also train elders and leaders. So everywhere that he went, he was going to be there for a little while, a few months, maybe a few years in some places, but he knew it was so important that that local group of people was healthy, that he would train other elders and leaders and pastors so that when he left, we've got this healthy group of people who gather 
to worship Jesus Christ. Several of Paul's letters are written to those pastors that he trained. Those letters include instructions about their leadership and how they are supposed to lead as spiritual leaders and elders and pastors. And it also included information about how eldership worked inside of the church. There's a lot of that in these letters, especially the letters to the other pastors. So brand new Christians. There were no second generation Christians in the New Testament church. These are all brand new Christians, right? They're now building new lives and families inside of the church. All of these brand new Christians are coming out of one lifestyle and they're entering another completely different lifestyle. And what they need now is an institution. They need an organization that's actually going to help them live this brand new life. And then encourage others to come out of that old lifestyle into a new lifestyle and begin to follow Jesus Christ. Depending on your background, you might have been part of a synagogue. If you were of Jewish background, became a follower of Jesus Christ, you were a part of a synagogue, and now you're becoming a part of a church. If you were a Greek or Roman believer who had a business, you were part of a guild, what we might call a trade union. But it wasn't just a union. Guilds were actually connected to the Greek and Roman gods, and you were required to pay obeisance to those Greek and Roman gods. And so you're coming out of those guilds and now into a church. You were most likely a part of some other tribal religion or pagan religion. But now you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And all of those institutions that you used to belong to, all of those things helped build your moral system, helped build your view of what family meant, of what citizenship meant. Yet it helped build your priorities. It helped build your weekly and daily and monthly rhythms and habits of life. They were all encouraged by these institutions that you were a part of. But now you've become a follower of Jesus Christ. You're leaving those things. And what we need now is an institution, a brand new one, that now is empowered and started and furthered by the work of the Holy Spirit, that now teaches all of these other things now in light of Jesus Christ. You see, so the church now is intended to help give believers their sense of what is morally right and wrong, their shape of family and citizenship, their sense of priorities with their lives. The church now builds your weekly habits and monthly habits instead of all of those other things. So you see, the building of this local body becomes critical to the New Testament church. And this is one of the reasons why, guys, the church has to be different than the other institutions of our culture. Because we're building different things into our lives now, led by Jesus Christ. So the difference in the power and the work of the church, it's important for us. It's the desire of the New Testament epistles that there would be everywhere a vibrant and courageous faith amongst Christians encouraged by the church. So this is the final set of thoughts inside of the book of Hebrews with everything else this book deals with. The final thought is I want to make sure you pay attention to the church. So this passage deals with this relationship. And it talks about the expectations that are given to us and sort of both sides of this relationship, this symbiotic relationship between pastors and spiritual leaders 
and congregations. And where there is health there in that relationship, we have a vibrant and courageous and creative kingdom of God there at the local church. It can be a beautiful and powerful thing. So I want to talk about these two sides of things that are mentioned in this passage of Scripture and what's expected of us in this relationship. And the first side of things I want to talk about is the role of pastors, the expectation that they give to pastors. So the first thing that sticks out to me is this, that pastors in this passage of Scripture are described as shepherds of souls. Obey them and submit to them because what they are doing is they are keeping watch over your souls. All right, now the first thought that comes to me as I think about keeping watch over souls is that this requires belief in an eternal soul. Now that's important. Because more and more mainline denominations and ministers in mainline denominations are writing books and articles and preaching that there are no such things as immortal, eternal souls. It's stunning how that kind of philosophy and theology works its way into the church. But your soul, to make things pretty straightforward and simple, your soul is that eternal thing that will never die. It's that thing inside of you that's going to make it past the death of your physical body and into the presence of Jesus Christ or apart from the presence of Jesus Christ for all of eternity. Every human being is an eternal being from this point forward. And your soul represents that thing that is that eternal thing that is formed and shaped by salvation, by decisions, becoming more or less like Jesus Christ throughout our lives. And so pastors are shepherds of souls. That's fascinating to me. Pastors are not just some other form of corporate management, um, self-help gurus, Pastors aren't just those kinds of things. Pastors and spiritual leaders are the kind of people who are learning how to pay attention to people's souls. That's a big deal. And I'm not telling you I've got that one figured out. But this is how Scripture speaks of spiritual leaders and the shepherds that Jesus gives to his people. Heather, a little while ago, was reading in one of her uh, devotionals. It's written by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is one of the great pastor theologians of the last 200 years. And in one of those devotionals, he described the work of the pastor in such a way, I, I sort of have paraphrased it here, but it's become my favorite description of the work of a pastor. And what he said was this, Pastors dig wells in people's souls so that God can fill them with living water. I like that. <laughs> pastors dig wells in people's souls so that God can fill them with living water. Do pastors save people? No. Do pastors transform lives and restore families? No. Are pastors part of what it means to prepare the way of the Lord so that he can do what only he can do? You bet. Right? Shepherds of souls. Listen to how Paul puts it when he writes to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. This is a passage that is in my head every single week. Colossians 1, 28 through 29, he says this, Him we proclaim, speaking of Jesus, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works 
within me. That is chock full of a lot of beautiful and powerful stuff. But bottom line, this is eternal business that we're at when we gather together to worship Jesus Christ. This is not simple stuff. This is not a social organization. This is eternal work that God is at when we gather as the church. And the language in that passage rolls over itself in such a way as to, to emphasize something. God gives His power to His ministers so that ministers can then work as hard as they can with His power to present the church to God as mature as possible. So pastors work. God's ministers, His spiritual leaders work as shepherds of souls to bring people as close to Christ as we possibly can. So pastors are shepherds of souls. And then it says this. They do this as people who are to give an account of what they do. So pastors are accountable. Now this gets interesting inside of the life of the pastor in the American culture. There are a lot of interesting expectations that are placed upon a pastor from outside. All of these normal cultural expectations of institutions that sort of land in the pastor's lap. And the pastor has to be careful. The church has to be careful with those kinds of expectations. Because in the end, a pastor is responsible and a church is responsible to God for what they do, not always to these external expectations. We sometimes joke with other pastors that there are three ways to uh, measure the success of a pastor. The three B's, we call them. Buildings, bucks, and rear ends. Okay, These are the things that we are held accountable to. I'm glad you got that. I worked on that one so I wouldn't missay it. <laughs> pastors are not accountable to that in the way that they are accountable to God for their calling, accountable God for what they teach, for how they pray, for how they deal with people. This phrase, they keep watch, it actually has military overtones. It's a guard, it's a sentry, keeping watch on the wall, watching for enemies, watching for threats, and raising the alarm. This is an image that the Old Testament uses a few times, especially when God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel. He has this conversation with Ezekiel twice. And here's part of it in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17. He says this, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them the warning from me. So the Lord goes on to tell Ezekiel this, all right? So every time, Ezekiel, you hear from me, I need you to pass this along to God's people because you're the watchman on the wall. He says, now, if you hear from me and you don't say anything and the threat shows up and the people rebel and die, their blood is on your hands. If you hear from me and you tell them what I've said and they still rebel and die, now their blood is on their hands and not on yours. They keep watch over your souls as people who are going to give an account. God speaks this way to Ezekiel, 
Paul speaks this way to some of the pastors that he writes to. Paul told Timothy to preach the word and to be ready in season and out of season, to be ready all the time with the truths of God no matter the circumstance. Paul told the young pastor Titus, now make sure you keep teaching things that are in line with sound doctrine whether or not people want to hear it. This is the accountability that belongs to pastors. So instead of a cycle of inappropriate or improper or unbiblical expectations that sometimes churches and pastors get caught up into, here's where it comes down to. It's accountability between God and his servants and his people. So pastors do their job as those who are going to be accountable before God. And then this, I just love this, pastors need, they require. Pastors and spiritual leaders are dependent upon the fellowship of the church. He writes all of this and he says, now listen people, I need you to pray for us. Pray for me. Who knows if this person is, is married or has a family, but it's probably a part at least of some kind of missionary team. This is common in the New Testament. Pray for us, he says. He asks for prayer that he can do his job well, that he can stand with integrity. He says, now I know that my conscience is clear, but he says, pray for us, that we can do our job well, that we really can stand with integrity before God and before the church and before the rest of the world. It is painful to watch what happens to the church in the name of Jesus Christ when pastors fall in these just spectacular ways, things that could have and should have been avoided, and yet what's brought on the name of the Christ in the church becomes so difficult to deal with. So the writer here says, pray for us. We need a clear conscience. We need to be accountable. We need to be able to do this well. No pastor is perfect. Every pastor is a human who deals with the same temptations that everybody else does. But a pastor is intended to aim at integrity, growth, and knowledge, and wisdom of Jesus Christ in this desire to act honorably in all things. This request from the writers of the epistles to the church to pray for us is actually pretty common. If you look it up through the New Testament, this happens a lot. Another one of these moments is in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 1. Paul says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. The Thessalonians received the word of God openly, and God did powerful things and changed their lives. And the apostle Paul says, I want you to pray for us so that what happened to you when we brought the gospel to you will happen in the next city that we go to. Pray for our work so that the word of God would increase and spread. Pray for us. And he says, pray that we would be restored to you sooner rather than later. I like this thought. Inside of the early church, many of these leaders, the apostles, the elders, and so forth, they really were. They were part of missionary teams. And so they would start or encourage a church in one place or another, and they'd move together. They were often itinerant wherever they would go. And so they'd write this letter back because they wanted to see this church again. Sometimes these leaders were itinerant because they would, get they would get persecuted if they stayed in one place for too long. And this is often how the persecution of the church happened in the early church and still happens today. 
If a local leader or governor wants to silence the church, they find the people who are considered to be leaders of that church and they throw them into prison and take all of their stuff away. So oftentimes these leaders would just simply move from place to place and all that persecution did was increase the reach and the power of the church. Maybe this leader was facing that kind of persecution. We know this church was. And he says, pray for us because I really want to be back with you. You see, this pastor needs the fellowship of the church. The church needs the fellowship of their spiritual leaders and elders as well. So the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ was important to this spiritual leader as well. So the pastor has these things laid on them, these expectations of what it means to be a spiritual leader, but then the congregation has these things laid at their lap as well. So I want to talk about some of the things that are expected of the congregation in this passage of Scripture. And the first is this, is that the congregation is expected to be responsive in obedience. Obey the things that you have been taught. And inside of all of this is the understanding that Paul every now and then will make explicit that as long as what's happening in this body of Christ is pointing you to Jesus Christ, obey and submit and follow. Paul would say things like this, Now follow me as I follow Christ. That's the assumption built into this, right? So the expectation of being a follower of Jesus Christ, just saying it out loud, explains the expectation that we will obey him. We will hear what he has to say. We will learn what his word says. We will hear what happens when we gather together as the body of Christ. And we will begin to put into action obedience to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And guys, Christian obedience is the certain kind of act of the will. A will that has been empowered and transformed by the Holy Spirit. But it is, and it's, a, it's an interesting thing when it comes to Christian obedience. It is this voluntary decision that we make to begin to align our lives with the will of God, to actually do the things that God has told us to do. In our world, when we talk about obedience to spiritual leaders or obedience to a text or a dogma or an orthodoxy, it just rubs our culture the wrong way. It rings all the wrong bells. And yet Christian obedience is not forced conformity to someone or something, but what happens in Christian obedience is that it becomes this desire that wells up from within us to show love to the God who saved us. If we are going to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything that is within us that requires obedience to the things of God, if I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, it requires obedience to the things that God has told me to do. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews, the pastor of this church, does not hesitate to tell the church, obey. It's a a requirement that's given to all of us. It's the kind of thing that opens our lives to God. So the congregation is expected to be responsive in obedience. The congregation is also expected to be respectful in their submission to the leadership that God has given them. All right. Submit. When the Christian hears that word, there's typically one verse of Scripture that the Christian thinks of. If I told you next week our sermon is on submission, how many of you would just go ahead and stay home that day? Because we think 
of Hebrews, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. Okay, now that verse of scripture is biblical. It's there. It has a meaning. But that's usually all we think about. Submission is a whole life demand that is placed upon me as a follower of Jesus Christ. It is this multi-dynamic, it is this kaleidoscope of behavior that God has placed upon me in my submission to Him, and guys, in my submission to other brothers and sisters in Christ. Biblical submission is this broad topic. It's not just that one verse. It's this broad topic of our behavior. Biblical submission arises out of humility, the humility that is necessary for Christian experience. The humility that is necessary for the healthy family of God. Okay, submission's a big deal in the New Testament. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. We're doing this because we're obeying Jesus Christ. We're learning what submission, biblical submission, looks like. So guys, when we speak of something like this, especially in the context of the health of the local church, we learn that to submit to good teaching, we do that because it gets at the truth of who Jesus is. We don't submit to good teaching because the pastor is full of charisma and we want everyone to know that we go to his church, right? We submit to good teaching because it gets at Jesus. It shows us Jesus. It teaches us Jesus. It digs a well in our soul so that God can fill it with his water and his life. We submit to one another because in doing so, we learn how to practice the humility of Jesus Christ. Guys, the biblical understanding of submission teaches us that we do not live independently from one another in order to live the way that we believe that we ought to live. Biblical submission teaches us that we live in this interconnected web of the family of God, and our lives have ripple effects and affect those around us. And so submission teaches us that other people are more important than I am. And I'm going to figure out how to live that way with whatever God has given me, to walk into the body of Christ and to take on the mind of Christ, as Paul says in Philippians 2, to see others as more important than yourselves because this is how Jesus viewed you. Now, like the word obedience, submission, we don't like that word. One of the most important values to our culture is the value of self-expression. One of the best things that you can do for me is to allow me to express myself however I want to express myself. One of the worst things you can do to me is tell me you can't express yourself that way. Okay, that's one of our culture's values. But I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I have other values thrown at me, like obedience and submission to the truth of life and how it is lived. And only in these things will I find the freedom of Jesus Christ, not in our culture of self-expression, which is a relativistic mudslide, but in obedience and in submission. And in the end, guys, we have learned that we submit to Jesus Christ because this is the only way to salvation. So the congregation is expected to be respectful in their submission to the things of Christ. 
And then the congregation is called to joyful cooperation. And one commentator used this phrase, and I loved it. He said, now behave this way, church, because then it becomes a joy. It becomes a joy to become a pastor or spiritual leader of this kind of church. It becomes a joy to become a part of this kind of church. It is, is that you do this thing with joy instead of with groaning. I'm going to let you in on a little pastoral secret. Groaning makes pastoring difficult. <laughs> right? Joy in the heart of the believer makes it a pleasure. It makes it easy. It makes it good. We can actually move forward where there is joy instead of groaning. You see, joy in the Christian heart is an encouragement to the pastor and spiritual leader. It's an encouragement to your brother and sister in Christ who sits down next to you on Sunday mornings. I love this word groaning in the Greek. What it means, um, I believe the literal translation is, (laughs) it means to sigh. Let's do this with joy instead of sighing and groaning and griping and complaining and moaning. When we groan as Christians, it makes church hard. It makes spending time with each either which with each other hard. And when groaning and griping and complaining becomes a habit to us, it treats the gift as a burden. The gift that God has given us in our salvation, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, the gift that God has given us inside of the local body of believers, all these things are a gift. And if we live groaning instead, we treat all of this as if it is a burden and we despise what God has given us. The Psalms are magnificent about this point of view. Psalm 33, 1 says this, Shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. (laughs) Those of you who have become followers of Jesus Christ have been made righteous in the sight of God. And what is rational for you now? Praise. What is good for you now? Praise. It befits our lives to live in joy and in praise. Psalm 84, 2 My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. I really want to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ so that together we can praise the Lord. We can together be in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he says, everything about me itches to be in the courts of the Lord. So we do this with joyful cooperation. And when the sides of this equation, the two sides of this are going well, there really can be a vibrant, effective, courageous, wonderful, beautiful local body of believers. And so now in his last few thoughts, the writer talks about the God who is at work in that side, that kind of church. In verse 20, he says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, 
to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. This young pastor, Timothy, apparently has been released from prison, and the writer of Hebrews says, I'm going to bring him with me next time I come. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, your brothers and sisters in that nation. They send you greetings as well. Grace be with you all. This is a beautiful benediction. Now may the God of peace be with you, equip you, fill you with his kind of divine power and work so that you can do the things that God has created you to do, called you to do, empowered you to do. The author has asked for prayer from the church for him and for those with him. And now the author openly prays for the congregation. That's what these verses are. And he says the only way any of this work is ever going to get done is that the God of our salvation is at work within us. The God who has the power to do these kinds of things. The God who has the power to raise Jesus from the dead. The God who has the power to forgive all of our sins for all of eternity through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, who is now risen from the dead and seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. That's the God who has power to work inside of your life now. That's incredible that every one of us who follows Jesus Christ now has the God of all creation at work inside of us. May he equip you to do everything he has created you to do. And I love this thought. It's in almost every benediction of the epistles. He is the God of peace. He is the God of peace. This phrase strikes me more and more all the time. Our culture is not finding peace. The idols that our culture worships are bringing division and hatred and falsehood and strife and bloodshed and death. But there is one God, the one true God, who is the Prince of Peace. I love this thought. May the God of peace, the church, the church friends, is going to become the beacon of the peace of God for our culture because there's only one God of peace. He says the shed blood of Jesus Christ is at work here. He is the great shepherd of his people. Every pastor, every missionary, every spiritual leader is an under-shepherd under the one great shepherd, Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the shepherd of the sheep. They know my voice. I know their names. If one of them is lost, I am the one who goes out and finds them. I am the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus, the great shepherd, of our souls. His last thoughts, right? I appeal to you. Pay attention to these things, he says. Pay attention to what you have heard. Please remember those of us who are away from you. 
And it is all about the grace of God at work. And I want to finish with this thought. because I love this language here in the verses that we have read. May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ equip you to do His work. All of us. Not just me or the staff or somebody else, but every single one of us are equipped by God to do His work. This is one of the critical reasons why the body of Christ, the local church, is so important to us, is that God fills the church with people that He equips to do His work. He has literally put you inside of this church with your hands and your feet and your capacities so that you can be a part of us doing the work of God. He hasn't put you here so that you can just listen to me blather on for 35, 45 minutes a week. Although I know that's exciting for everybody, right? <laughs> He's equipped every one of us to do His work. So guys, the work of God belongs to all of us. The work of God is not reserved for those who are uniquely gifted or for those who are pastors or spiritual leaders. There are no such things as super disciples who do all of our spiritual work for us. They're the ones expected to make changes in culture around us and on and on. There are no such things. God has given us. I love this vocabulary from 2 Peter. God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Spiritual leaders in the church are intended to do things like lead the church and equip the church and protect the church. The church is intended to head out into the rest of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul talks about this relationship in Ephesians 4, he says it like this in verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. In the end, this is God working in us. And we are given the chance to work for God to accomplish His purposes here on earth. This, friends, I believe, is the glimmer of hope that our culture needs. I think, I really do think, this will become the kind of light that the people around us need as so many things grow darker and darker. The people of God living lives full of the light and life of Jesus Christ. This kind of church filled by this kind of God can actually bring light to this world. Amen? Let's pray.